When we first moved here 26 years ago, for Charlene, it was coming back to familiar territory. Charlene had actually attended a church you may know called Pleasant Hill Community Church when she was a second grader. Uh, back in the archive somewhere, I found the membership. Uh, her dad was a, a member here. Uh, so she attended this church. She grew up in West Chicago on Church Street. We've actually driven by the house. I still want to go and knock on the door and say, hey, my wife grew up here. Can we look around? But I've never had that courage to do that. But So for her, it was coming back to the familiar. Her grandmother, a 90-plus-year-old resident of Wheaton, her house still stands down there. Her great-grandfather built a house that's on Main Street. So there's just all of this familiarity. Uh, and so different times we would just go exploring. We hadn't been, she hadn't been here for over 15 years, so it was time to go exploring. And we would be driving down the road, have the kids loaded into the car, driving down the road, and, and, and Charlene would go, okay, at this next corner, turn left. And I would say, why? It just feels right. Just do it. And we would turn left and get to our destination. And another time, turn right here. It feels right. Now, I had driven around here a lot, too, but I'm not as familiar as she would, so sometimes there would be conversations. But usually she would prevail. And, you know, it was great. It, it got us. It, it kind of restored her familiarity with the area, and it achieved another goal that was not intended but was still joyous. It drove our kids nuts. They just couldn't stand, do you know where you're going? Yeah, I know where I'm going. How do you know? Because it feels right. Mom, it can't just feel right. You've got to know. It was great. There was a sense from our kids, Mom and Dad have lost it. They really don't know what they're doing. And, this is, and it really kind of rocked their security for a little while. If we're really honest with ourselves, don't we sometimes ask God questions like, God, do you know where you're going? Do you know what you're doing? You know, every weekend we hear of gun violence just in Chicago or carjackings or so many things going on. And, and, and the, 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 the violence on the red line, especially the CTA. And then we realize that all the finger pointing and all the political rhetoric still doesn't make a difference. And then, you know, you, you just look around, you hear of people that have misused all the, all the funding that was provided to help people through the pandemic. And there's millions upon millions of dollars that was misused. And there's things that happen that don't make the headlines all the time. Abuse of landlords or bosses. Neighbors squabbling with one another. It, we hear about it sometimes, but then we pretend it's not affecting our community. Human trafficking continues at an alarming rate, not just in third world countries, but even in quiet communities like ours. Yeah. And, and there's, there's constant battles of racism and injustice and inequity and food insecurity 
and homelessness. And it's like it never seems to go away. And it's times, maybe it's just me, but there are times when I say, is God really involved? Does God really know what's going on? And if you've ever asked those kinds of questions, if you've ever watched or read a news report and said, God, where are you? And had that uneasy feeling that I hope God's in control. I hope he's aware. If you've ever had those questions, then you're in great company today. Because there was a man back in about 605 B.C. named Habakkuk, and he had the same questions. And he reminds us that we're not alone. Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. By the time Habakkuk comes along, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. It is gone. It no longer exists. The Assyrians have totally wiped it out. And the people that live there, God's people that live there, the, the ten tribes that live there, they have been scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. Scattered to the point that even to this day, we aren't able to kind of dig back and find out who's who as far as where they came from. They totally scattered them. But also by the time that Habakkuk prophesies, the Assyrians have been wiped out or were close to because the Babylonians had risen to power and they had come through and they had defeated the Assyrians and, and they were pressing at the gate of Judah and Habakkuk's there prophesying. Habakkuk observes his world and his people and his community. And he's wondering, God, are you there? God, do you care? And in this brief prophecy, just three chapters, we're going to learn what God wants us to do when nothing makes sense. How does God want us to respond when everything seems confusing? And Habakkuk begins in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. He cries out to God. This is a, a, a brief personal lament. The prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk looks at his world and he says, God, why are you listening to my prayer? There's injustice. There's suffering. Those who are suffering are treated even worse. There's destruction. There's violence. The idea of those words, there's vandalism to property. There's the, the harm that such a culture brings to human relationships. One gets the idea that nothing is working. He says there's strife and conflict. Those are legal terms. And you get the idea that people were settling their differences by suing one another. The more things change, the more they remain the same, huh? Habakkuk is just struggling. And, and, and he says, 
the law is paralyzed. Now bear in mind, when Habakkuk talks about the law, he's talking about the law of Moses. The law that God's people were supposed to live by. The laws that were set up in Leviticus to to guide and direct the culture and the nation to set up order in their culture. And he said the law is, is paralyzed. It's unable to work. It's numb. It's ineffective. There's no justice. And in fact, he says, the righteous are hemmed in so that justice is perverted. See, those who want to be righteous and law-abiding citizens are overrun by the lawbreakers and they're not getting any satisfaction from those who are supposed to make the decisions. One scholar described the society this way. It was a society full of crime, violence, corruption, mock legal battles, a ruined society. And Habakkuk says, God, why do you tolerate that? Why do you let that go? I know I've been there. I've wondered. Because as we look at Habakkuk verses 1 through 4, we we come to one conclusion. Sometimes we can't see God's hand. Sometimes we can't see what God is doing. Sometimes we don't understand how God is working. And Habakkuk actually does the right thing. He cries out to God. He cries out to God and says, God, don't you see what these people are doing? And these are people who claim to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't you see? And Habakkuk gets an answer. The rest of chapter 1, all the way into the beginning of chapter 2, is God's answer. And God says to Habakkuk, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, before I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. God says, just watch Habakkuk. This is going to blow your mind. I am raising up the Babylonians. So I, I misspoke. The Assyrians are still in control right now. But I'm raising up the Babylonians. They are fierce. They are fast. Their horses run like leopards. They are just fast. That's in verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. They fly like an eagle swooping in to devour. I have a little experience with that. I got struck by a hawk a couple years ago. It flew with just right into me. It was freaky. So this is the Babylonians just like, ah, they're coming and they will come at you in quiet fierceness they mock kings scoff rulers they laugh at all fortified cities there is nothing they can do nobody can stop them you see when i can't see god's hand i need to trust that god has a bigger picture in mind 
And so here's that bigger picture. There's a new world superpower coming onto the scene, Habakkuk. They, they're defeating the Assyrians. They're going to defeat the Egyptians. They are coming on the scene. They are growing. And God says, I'm raising them up to judge my people. That's in verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians. It's hard for us to grasp a hold of that concept. It's hard for us to, to see a ruthless, godless nation be used by God for his purposes. That's, that's hard to wrap our heads around. And especially in this a 21st century uh, world of wanting everything to be fair and all. We just, it's, it's hard. It's hard for us to get it right here. God, though, is fully aware of exactly what he's doing and who he's using. And notice what he says about the Babylonians in verse 11. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. These are people that don't see the hand of God in their lives. Now, we can go to the book of Daniel, and we can see how one king, King Nebuchadnezzar, changed how he did things. He, he saw things a little bit differently after he had some encounters with Daniel. But for the most part, just like all the ancient cultures, it was the idea that my God is bigger than your God, and my God can defeat your God. So if I defeat you in battle, then my God actually won. And they did, but they went to another step. They said, nah, okay, we worship gods, Marduk and some of these others, but you know what? It's us. My strength is my God. My abilities are my God. Our abilities to strategize, our abilities to train horses for war, our abilities to find the weak spot in your defensive, that's our God. God is fully aware of their ways. They did not see the hand of God in their lives. They gave no credence to his presence. But God is aware. And I think we need to remember something this morning as we think of how God works in the nations in ways that we can't see. We must never forget. No nation on the faith of the earth exists outside the awareness of God. And every nation, while under God's purview, is still a human nation and it will not last forever, and every nation will always be held accountable to God. We need to be aware of that. Every nation, every nation right now in existence will be held accountable to God. No nation lasts forever. They may last for a long, long, long time, but no nation, no human nation is eternal. Only God is eternal. Well, Habakkuk, here's God. He has a second complaint. If you look at the headings in your scripture, we're still in chapter 1. God's answer only took 11 verses, so Habakkuk, Habakkuk, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe what he's hearing. So he starts with a question, a rhetorical question. Lord, are you not from everlasting? And the answer, yes. My God, my Holy One, you will never die, Lord, and I think we can't just read this without some kind of emphasis because there's, 
just think about you being in this situation. And it's kind of this, Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment? You, my rock, have ordained them to punish? God, they're worse than we are. Why would you use them? God, they're awful. Why are you using them? Don't you have a better way? This, this can't be your best plan. You've got to have a better plan. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. He's telling God stuff God already knows. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And, and so why are you going to do this? Why will you silent, are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? We're bad, God. Go back to what I said in verses 1 through 4. We're really bad. Why would you use someone worse than us? Isn't it always easier to look down the ladder? You know, to say, well, I might be a sinner, but I'm not as bad of a sinner as that person. Back it is struggling. He, he says, God, you know, in fact, look at this. Um, verse 14, you've made people like the fish of the sea, the sea creatures that have no rulers. The wicked foe, speaking of Babylon, pulls them all up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. In other words, they're saying, you know, the Babylonians are like some guy that goes out, puts his nets out into the sea, catches up all these fish, and then prays and sacrifices to the net. They don't even give you credit, God. They don't even give you credit for what they do. Habakkuk is stunned. So now he gets a glimpse of God's hand and he can't believe it. And so he concludes his second complaint with these words. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. Habakkuk pours his heart out again to God. I don't get it. And then he says, okay, God, I just need to wait for you. I'm going to wait for your response. I don't think this is a, huh, take that. Now tell me what you're going to say. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's a humble wait. God, I am totally confused here. I am totally at my wit's end. Here's how I feel. I'm going to wait for you. Can I tell you, sometimes the best thing we can do is just wait on God. And I'm going to tell you that is the hardest thing to do. If you're a doer, I'm kind of a doer. I want to do it. I want to fix it. I want to get involved. Let's figure it out. Let's make it happen. And God has put me at times in my life to say, wait. Just wait. And that's where Habakkuk, Habakkuk is. And God answers him. And God's answer is lengthy and yet simple in its length. 
Because what God's answer to Habakkuk is simply this. I will summarize the rest of chapter 2 in one short sentence, and it's simply this. Habakkuk, there are two ways of living. There are basically two ways of living. You hear people say that all the time, right? There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who like the Chicago Bears and those who choose winners. You know, there's two types of people in this world, right? Uh, so, but God says, Habakkuk, there are only really two basic ways of living when you boil it all down. And he summarizes those. The Babylonian way is a self-inflated way, and we're going to see that in just a moment. But I want you to look at verse 4 of chapter 2. The Lord replies. I'll pick it up. We'll get a running start. Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait on the Lord. And the Lord replies, write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. In other words, write down what I'm going to say. You've been there, haven't you? I mean, the older we get, the more we write notes to ourselves, right? The older we get, the more we write lists. When I was a, a, a professor... Uh, I would say to students, write this down. You're going to need to know this. That's kind of that professorial warning. This is going to be on the test. God says, Habakkuk, write this down. I don't want it to be forgotten. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. That's the divine way of living. Older translations say the just will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. You see, the reality is when we don't know what's going on, when we can't see God's hand, when we're confused, we have one thing that's going to get us through, and that is putting our trust in God because we know He has been there. Living by faith in moments when you can't see what's going on, I think means simply to cling to God because you believe He does know the beginning from the end. You believe He is the eternal God. You believe He's your only hope when nothing else makes sense. And God goes on and He says, and He talks about the puffed up person who's arrogant and never at rest. They're greedy. They, they gather themselves to nations. They take captive everybody. That's a puffed up living. I am going to control, let me put it in personal terms, I'm going to control everything and everyone in my life. That's living personally. That's a puffed up living. And what God does is he announces five statements of judgment against Babylon even before he uses Babylon to punish Israel. They all begin with the word woe. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly, suddenly arise? Will not they wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many nations. The people who, left, who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. This is a, a woe. This is a pronouncement against Babylon. But we ought to look at it and say, so how does it apply to me? And the simple thing that God is saying is, those who take advantage of others, those who plunge others into financial bondage for their own 
advantage will someday reap the same financial bondage they have sown. That's what Babylon did. They, they took over everybody and they said, you know, you're, you're piling up stolen goods. You're becoming wealthy by extortion. It will come back on you. In verses 9 to 11, we have the second woe. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. They, they tried to insulate themselves with their ill-gotten wealth, and what they will find is that their personal empire will eventually crumble. When you and I build our empire on the backs of others taking advantage of them, it eventually crumbles. Third woe. Verses 12 and 13, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Those who use corruption to build an empire, whether it be the empire of Babylon or a personal empire, will find their work crumbling. And in the midst of the woes, there's a quick pause. Verse 14 is a, is a quick pause, and it talks about that faith living. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fact of the matter is, every human endeavor, especially human endeavors that just try to insulate us and try to control our, our future, whether it be a nation or an individual, eventually crumbles because the earth is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. He is what's important. Fourth woe. Woe to him who gives drinks to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin until they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory, the opposite of what God does. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed the cup from the Lord's right hand is coming to you. The disgrace will cover your glory. Violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Those who abuse others to amuse themselves at the expense and shame of those under their charge have abused God's creation and will experience that same shame and fear. Final woe. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts his own creation. He, cannot, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to a lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. Those who worship idols and try to wake them up will find themselves empty. You know, we've talked about, we talk about idolatry a lot. Anything, any person, I would even say any desire that comes between you or me and God is an idol. And God says they're empty. But he reminds us where he is. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk hears this. 
He's aware of it. All of a sudden, he comes to his own senses. All of a sudden, he realizes, okay, I get it now. God is in control. I get it. This isn't going to work out the way I thought it would work out, but God is going to work together. And so we need to realize, let's, let's move a couple ahead on the slide. Are there two bays of living? That should be up there next. Yes, and now let's go to the next one. God is the only sure thing. That's what chapter 3 is all about. God is the only sure thing. Habakkuk responds to God's prayer and he responds with a song. And actually it's a song that when you look at it, it's a song that has musical directions in it. Now I do not know, and I'm in good company with other scholars, don't know exactly what a shigionoth is, okay? But what they believe it is, is it's part of kind of a lament that leads to something greater. At the very end, Habakkuk says, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. So this was to be a song that was to be accompanied by the stringed instruments. And Habakkuk responds in this song, and he wants people to remember through his song the power and the character and the greatness of God. In verses 1 and 2, there's the introduction. And, and this is a plea for God to once again do his mighty deeds. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. Lord, you are so great. You are so mighty. Repeat those deeds in your day. We know what you did to the Egyptians. We know how you changed things. Lord, we want to see you work again. Verses 3 through 8 declare the presence of the powerful God. And he mentioned some places. God came from Timon, the Holy One from the Mount Paran. Timon is southern Palestine. Mount Paran is, is in that Sinai Peninsula. That is the area where God first revealed himself to the people of Israel. When he came down onto Mount Sinai and the mount trembled and quaked and there was lightning and fire and the people very bravely said, I'm not going up there, Moses, you go. Because they saw the power of God. One could say God is everywhere. He, the plague went before him. He st- verse 5. Verse 6. He stood and shook the earth. Verse 7. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress. The dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? God, you're everywhere. You're powerful. You're powerful in every way. Your weapons are the powers and forces of nature that man can in no way harness. Verses 9 through 13, he declares the actions of a powerful God. He says, you uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, and the mountains saw you and withered. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roar, the waves lifted on high. How has God shown that? You go back to Genesis, we've got this great flood that Noah was involved in. God did that. You go to Egypt and you see that God parted the Red Sea. God worked. He, he can alter the course of nature. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. You look at 
the story of Joshua. And Joshua there cried out to God. And the Bible says the sun stood still so they had more time to, to have the victory. He says, in wrath you strode through the earth. In anger your threat, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people. You crushed your enemy. If you look back in 2 Kings 19, there was a man by the name of Sennacherib, a general of the Assyrian army. He had surrounded Jerusalem where Hezekiah was king at the time. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hezekiah. And, and, he, and he went to the, and he called out to the people and said, you're all going to die here. This is, and he sent a letter to them, and this is just, we're going to destroy you. We're going to wipe you out. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't follow his God. Hezekiah put that letter before the Lord, and, 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 and the, the prophet Isaiah came with the word of the Lord saying, he's not going to win. And a few verses later, you read that the angel of the Lord went through the camp of the Assyrians and wiped them all out. That's the power of God in Habakkuk saying, God, I know this. I've seen this. You are that powerful. So after rehearsing the power of God, Habakkuk backs up and he says, I heard. What did he hear? I heard about the power and the might of God. I heard and my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound. I mean, you talk about, you know, when, when you're in the, in the presence of greatness, you stand in awe. We, we may think that it's really something that someone gets to go to a, a dinner and get five minutes with the President of the United States, and it happens no matter who's in administration, people get to do these things and, and all. It's like, wow, you have to spend five minutes with the president. Whoa, you know. Uh, uh, my dad happened to know a guy who was actually a senator from Delaware, and my dad just called him Tommy, <laughs> you know, because they were friends. They'd known each other from West Virginia days. You know, it's just, you know, and so, you know, it's interesting when you're familiar and then when you're like awestruck, but with God, there's not familiarity. Yes, Jesus is our friend, but we serve a holy and righteous God that if we looked upon him without the blood of Jesus covering us, we would die. And Habakkuk is there. God, I heard, and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept in my bones, my legs trembled. God, I'm just standing here in abject fear. Yet, here's our thing again. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Okay, God, you're going to send this nation in. They're going to invade us. I'm scared out of my mind. I'm scared of trying to cross you. I don't get it. I'm just going to wait. You see, God holds your life and my life in his hand. closest I've ever come to that in my life was when I taught a college course in which there were seniors that if they didn't pass my class, they wouldn't graduate. <laughs> I have the power. Uh, it, only, it, didn't, it only lasted about half a semester, and they realized I was really kind of just a nice kid. 
but you know what? That's fear. Someone once said this, if you have never felt abject fear in the presence of God, you might be worshiping an idol. Habakkuk reviews the awesome power of God. It causes his heart to race. It causes his lips to quiver, his legs to tremble. And he says, and I would tell you, if we just look at the goodness of God, God is good, God is love, God is compassionate. Yes, he's those things. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind. Yes, but God is holy and he is righteous and he is just and he is exacting. And we cannot separate the two. We know that he is a God who is to be feared and respected and held in highest regard. Habakkuk says, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to try to change. I'm not going to try to question it. I'll just wait and see how you work, God. I'm going to cling to you. And now we have the conclusion of that refrain that began in chapter 2. The righteous will live by faith. What does that look like? What does it look like to live by faith? Habakkuk says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Look at those words. Habakkuk says, we live in this agricultural community of Judah. We depend on the olive crop and the grapes and the, the wine that comes from the grapes. We depend on that. We depend on the barley and the wheat to feed our animals. We depend on our animals for food, our sheep and our cattle. And what he is describing is complete and utter economic and agricultural devastation. Hurricane Ian times 100, completely wiping out communities so that when there is absolutely nothing left to depend on. My bank account is zero. My house has been wiped out. My car is at the junkyard. I have left the clothes on my back and they're tattered and my shoes have holes in them. When there is nothing left, who do you turn to? Who's there for you? And he says, it's that moment, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior, because the sovereign Lord is my strength. I, Habakkuk was so convinced that God is so able that he had nothing that would shake his confidence. He's not saying that the vines and the Olive trees and the sheep and the cattle and the crops. He's not saying they're not important. They're vital. They're vital to life. But what he's saying is, if God takes away all the things that I think are vital, but God stays there, I'll make it some way. Because God is what matters. He sees all of those things as provisions of God, but he sees God as his strength. The prophet 
says to those ones who catch the fish but worship the net, Habakkuk says, if I caught the fish, it would be God who allowed me to catch the fish. I will worship him. Habakkuk says, I'm sure-footed in life. That's what that image there was a book written many years ago called Hind's Feet in High Places. It's the King James translation of this. And it's the idea of, have you ever watched it? I mean, go on YouTube and just look up mountain goats. And watch them jump from just nothing and jump around. You know, it's like, wow. And he's saying, I am that sure-footed, not because of how great I am. I am that sure-footed because God is there And he gives me the foundation for my life. The message of Habakkuk is simple. When nothing makes sense, God is still there. He is the only sure thing. The only sure foundation. When your job is in jeopardy, God is still there. When you lose a loved one, God is still there. When the price of oil jumps to well over $100 a barrel, God is still there. When the culture continues to spiral into a moral cesspool, God is still there. When your kids go to school, whether down the street or across the country, when they leave the nest, God is still there. When you get sued, God is still there. When you fail a class or a test, God is still there. I think God has given us the book of Habakkuk to remind us that no matter what we face, to remind us that no matter what curveballs life throws at us, God is fully aware of them. God knew they were coming, and he says, hold on to me because God is the only dependable force you and I have in life. He's the only one that can give us a sure footing in the difficult walk of life. And that is a good God. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the prophet Habakkuk. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the freedom as you gave him the freedom to ask questions Questions that we struggle with. Questions that don't always make sense when we look at life. And yet, you are patient with us. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand that. That you are a patient God. And that we would learn what it means to be patient people. And wait on you and watch your hand. And Lord, maybe for us it's... A matter of even writing down those times when we see you at work so we can go back and say, this is where I saw God. I can make it through this because God is with me. Remind us of your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen.